Matthew chapter 26, verses 31 through 35, and then jumping ahead to verses 69 through 75. Uh, I'd invite you, if you're able to stand, please, for the reading of God's word. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. You will all fall away because of me on this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even if all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even though I must die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. And then jumping ahead to verse 69, Jesus has now been uh, arrested and the disciples have have fled. Uh, Peter is followed at a distance. Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. A female servant came to him and said, you also were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before all of them, saying, I do not know what you are talking about. When he went out to the porch, another female servant saw him. And she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus, the Nazarene. Again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly, you are also one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to curse, and he swore an oath, I do not know the man. At that moment, the cock crowed. Then Peter remembered what Jesus had said. Before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This is the word of God. And you can be seated. Uh, So from this passage, I'll preach from the title, Jesus Forgives Failures. Jesus Forgives Failures. If you're like most of us, there are certain events in your past that when they creep into your memory will immediately bring you back to that event. Good memories can do this, but it's recalling the less happy moments which really has the power to transport us back. For example, I remember as a third or fourth grader accidentally standing on top of a fire ant hill. By the time I realized it, the ants had made their way literally up my pants and were taking their revenge. My panicked yelps brought my dad running over, surveying the situation quickly. He and I wrestled my jeans to the ground so that we could begin swatting the ants away. Only after the danger had passed... Standing with my pants around my ankles, did it register that I had just disrobed publicly and that more than a few people would have an above average story to tell later that day? I can still remember the feeling that recognition brought to my just old enough to be embarrassed self. Honestly, though, more than our embarrassing memories, it's the more personal failures that still live just 
beneath the memory of our minds and our bodies. A face, a smell, a song are enough to bring back some terrible moment of betrayal, some awful experience of shame, some spectacular and undeniable failure. We witness this kind of moment in Peter's life in these verses. Peter, a brash and courageous man, a disciple Jesus had loved and mentored, a man acquainted with catastrophe, Peter fails so publicly, so dramatically, so permanently, that all he can do is flee the scene and weep. Earlier, Jesus had prophesied that all of his disciples would abandon him when the opposition came. Between our first and second portions of the passage, Jesus had been arrested and dragged away. In these verses, Peter confirmed Jesus' prophecy about the disciples falling away by denying him three times. Holy Week begins on Monday for Christians all over the world. In the coming days, we will remember Jesus' final week leading to the betrayal we read about here, leading to the sham trial, and leading eventually to Calvary. And though we commemorate these events each year, these are not ritual remembrances for us. In fact, There is no us without the events of Holy Week. There is no church. There is no beloved community. There are no fellowships of the forgiven. No, what we remember with reverence this week are the very origins of our salvation and our hope. And what Peter's very public humiliation reminds us of is that this salvation story runs straight through our own catastrophic failures. There is no Easter joy without Good Friday failure. This is kind of a bleak passage, especially if we will be brave enough to put ourselves in Peter's shoes and identify with his denials. So let me point out something that we must not forget over the next few minutes. The passage begins with Jesus telling his disciples two things. First, that in the face of opposition, they will all turn and run. And second, That after Jesus was raised, he would meet them back in Galilee, the region where they had spent most of the three previous years together. But Peter and the other disciples overlook this second promise in order to reject the first. Let's not make that same mistake. The promise of resurrection is one we must cling tightly to if we are to follow Jesus through the ugly center of our sin. 
So with that in mind, here's what I pray you'll carry home with you today. Jesus forgives failures. Jesus forgives failures. Yes, he forgives our acts of failure, our sins of omission and commission, but Jesus forgives more than our sinful acts. He forgives sinners. He forgives failures. None of us are only failures, of course. We are always primarily beloved image bearers of God. But the difficult and the necessary truth of Peter's example is that we are not people who occasionally sin, whose choices are sometimes sinful. Of all of the moments when Peter should have acted courageously and selflessly, this was it. The man he'd pledged his life to was facing death. The Messiah who had plucked him from a fishing boat in Galilee before preparing him to bring good news to the world was facing his demise. This was Peter's moment. And yet, what the pressure revealed was not some heroic figure, but a failure, a denier, an abandoner, a betrayer. Are you any different? Because I am not. If we are to grasp the power of Resurrection Sunday, the universe-altering fact of Jesus getting up from the grave, then we have to put ourselves in Peter's shoes this morning. To join him in shocked horror as we hear the rooster crow for the third time. To weep with him over our failures. And the only knowledge strong enough to keep us from looking away from our sin is this. Jesus forgives failure. Jesus attempts to prepare his disciples for what is to come. And Peter responds, even though I must die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the other disciples. I think if we're honest, we actually like Peter's response. It's heroic. It's brave. It's courageous. Elliot and I are watching The Mandalorian, and we watched an episode last night that, that, that reminded me of, 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 of this posture. The Mandalorian is always brave, is always courageous, is always going to throw himself into the heat of battle. Jesus had warned his disciples repeatedly about the opposition that would come, about his coming death. And now the time had arrived. And, and Jesus quotes the Old Testament prophet Zechariah to say, look, when, when the shepherd is taken, the sheep scatter. That's what sheep do. But the disciples say, not us. No, no, we're not going to scatter. We're not going to abandon you. We're not going to deny you. They think they will stand firm without Jesus. Which is funny when you think about the previous three years. Because Jesus had literally had to feed them. 
and protect them from corrupt leaders and cover them from demonic powers. The disciples had not been okay on their own in normal times, but they think they're going to be fine now. This is what we do. Jesus rescues us. He saves us from something. He provides in some miraculous way. And then we're like, I got it from here. I'll take the wheel now, Jesus. Thank you for that. I'm good now. Peter's fatal mistake. When Jesus warned him of what was to come was to forget that he was a sinner completely and thoroughly dependent on the grace of God. He thinks he can do it on his own. That he'll be okay when Jesus is taken from him. Think again about Jesus' triumphal entry as we reenacted with our children a few minutes ago. The people that day were not confessing their need for the actual Jesus. They were not confessing their allegiance for for, for Jesus as who he actually was. They got excited about the Jesus who could add a little something to their agenda. They were getting excited for the Jesus who could come alongside the plans they already had for their lives, for their people, for their nation. This is the Jesus they got excited about which is why they turned so quickly in that first Holy Week. The palms that they waved that day were not a confession of their need for Jesus as he actually was. It was a a demonstration of what they wanted Jesus to do for them. We could think of the palms as a kind of righteous agenda that they were shaking in front of him, as, as a demonstration of their ethical identity, their spotless reputation, their ideological purity. What, is, what does your palm leaf represent today? If you were in the crowd that day waving your palm leaf, what would you be asking Jesus to confirm for you? What expression or form of your own self-righteousness would you be trying to associate with Jesus? Jesus forgives failures. But like the disciples, our own self-righteousness can keep us from even confessing our failures in the first place. Given how confident Peter is, it's notable how quickly he spirals. First, as he's waiting there to see what happens to Jesus, it's, it's a female servant who says, you also were with Jesus, the Galilean. And Peter says, I do not know what you're talking about. And, and then a second female servant, maybe overhearing the first, says, no, no, this man was with Jesus, the Nazarene. Now Peter's getting nervous. And so he, he cries out with an oath, I do not know that man. Not, I don't know what you're talking about. I I don't even know who you're talking about. And the bystanders, they they, they start to notice something. And so even though Peter has made his way outside of the building into the shadows, they, they, they follow him and surround him. Certainly you are one of them because you got the Galilean accent just like Jesus has. And now Peter is losing his mind. 
And so in addition to an oath, he starts cursing. I do not know that man. Why does Peter fail three times? Jesus had told him not that long ago, you're going to deny me. Why wasn't the first denial enough to remind him? Oh, wait a second. (laughs) Jesus said something about this. I better catch myself. I better pull back. I better repent. I think the answer is that, that, that Peter didn't see himself as a sinner. He saw himself as righteous. He saw himself as being okay without Jesus. Jesus, even if everybody else falls away, not me. I'm different. I'm righteous. I'm strong enough. I'm good enough. I'm moral enough, Jesus. Even if I will die with you, Jesus. Peter didn't see himself as a frail sinner. As someone prone to fail. He saw himself as being okay without Jesus. It was his identity. And so Jesus becomes unnecessary to Peter. So Peter rejects Jesus' prophecy. Peter sees himself as a not denier. So that when the pressure comes and he starts to deny Jesus, he has to double down on that denial. Because I'm a not denier. Welcome back, kids. Our kids, some, our kids are going to lead us in worship on Easter. So just don't, you're just going to need to be here is what I'm saying. Don't miss this. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's um, terribly common to hear stories from churches about patterns of abuse and manipulation. Not all churches. Thanks be to God. But too often, patterns of abuse and manipulation that have gone on for years And when the stories finally come to light, I find myself wondering why after the first experience of abuse or manipulation, why wasn't light shed on that? Why didn't people confess and repent and restore and repair and make it right? And I think it has to do with how we Christians oftentimes see ourselves. We're supposed to be righteous. We're supposed to be perfect. We're not supposed to be like anybody else. And so we tell a story about ourselves. We're different. We're better. We're more holy. We're more righteous. And there's a way in which the story we tell about ourselves is the story that Peter told about himself. I'm okay without Jesus. So that when the abuse or the manipulation actually happens, we've got to double down on that false story. Because that's not who we are. We're not a sinful people. We're not a frail people. We're not a people dependent on the grace of Jesus. And we're a perfect people. We're a good people. We're a moral people. We're an ethical people. You see, this is what it means to not just fail every once in a while, to not just sin occasionally, but to be sinners. We live as though we are not dependent on God for everything. We live as though we need God occasionally, as though our dependence on God was something optional to our survival. Now, if you are here this morning and you're not a Christian, my hunch is you probably understand that better than a lot of us who are Christians. 
If you're not a Christian, you are probably more in touch with this way of living where, where we have to kind of construct our own standards of righteousness and morality that we're trying to attain. Right? Here's what justice looks like. So I, I want to be a just person. And then we spend all weekend binging Netflix. We, you, you understand the impossibility, not even of living to God's standard, but the, the standards we set for ourselves. Those of us who are Christians, if we can be honest, oftentimes live as functional atheists. Treating God as, as someone we need occasionally when things get really bad. But most of the time, we are okay on our own. It maybe seems upside down. But when we don't acknowledge our sinfulness, we spiral more deeply into ourselves. Because we have to try harder. And we have to do more. And we have to beat ourselves up because we messed up again. And it's all about us. And paradoxically, when we can claim our status as sinful people, when we can admit that we are failures, we are opening ourselves up to the grace and the mercy of God that rescues us from spiraling into ourselves and pulls us into relationship with the God who loved us and made us. When we admit our failures... We are opening ourselves up to the God who does not fail. But Peter is so committed to his identity as a not denier. He cannot see himself as a sinner. And so he spirals more and more deeply into himself. I bet most of us are spiraling in some way today. In some area of our lives, most of us are living as though we do not need God. As though it were up to us. For some of us, that has to do with, 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 with um, pressing through some place of addiction. For others of us, it's, it's literal financial provision. For, for some of us in marriages, it, it's, it's actually having a healthy marriage and living as though it were all on us to make that happen. We could go on. But my guess is that for every one of us, there's some place in our lives where because we are living as though God were optional, we have spiraled into ourselves. What is that area for you? What are the areas in your life where you are depending on your own moral and ethical abilities rather than on the grace and the mercy of God? Jesus forgives failures. Do not make Peter's mistake and refuse to confess your sinfulness. Let your confession open you to God's healing forgiveness. The rooster crows. And when the rooster crows, Peter's facade shatters. Then Peter remembered what Jesus had said. Before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. 
And if we have been willing this morning to put ourselves in Peter's shoes, we all know what that moment feels like. We all know what it feels like to hear the rooster crow. We have been laboring under our own strength. We have been uh, pulling ourselves along. We have been trying to live under our own power and, and, and wisdom, the lives we think we are supposed to live. And we think we are pulling it off. We think we've got it together. And then it all falls apart. The bottom falls out. And we're exposed for who we actually are. We can no longer pretend. The rooster crows and we wake up to our reality. This is Peter's moment. He can no longer pretend to be a not denier. He has denied his savior three times. I have been a pastor for a bunch of years, which means that I have had the opportunity to sit with people in the aftermath of the rooster's crow many times, many times. The the aftermath of a person realizing this is who I actually am. This is what is actually true about my life. And, And I have noticed in the aftermath of the rooster's crow, two different ways that people respond. Manifests in lots of different ways, but two main ways that people respond. Both people broken, sad, weeping over the reality of their brokenness and sinfulness. The first person very quickly shifts into crisis management mode. I I know I've messed up. I I, I know it's all come crumbling down. I know the the reality of my life has been exposed. Now, 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 how can I fix it? What do I need to do? Who do I need to talk to? What do I need to put back together? There's there's a a sorrow and a weeping, but there is still a commitment to doing it on my own. To putting my life back together. And you don't need an imagination to know how little life there is in that response. Because that's what gets us there in the first place. The second response is what we see in Peter. And he went out and wept bitterly. Period. Peter does not go, okay, uh, let me go back in and make this right. Uh, Let me go explain what I really meant when I said I don't really know him. I meant like I don't know know him. It's only been three years, but actually we kind of... He just weeps over his failure. And again, as paradoxical as it sounds, it is that weeping where hope can begin to enter. It is that weeping where grace can begin to enter. It is that weeping where transformation can begin to enter. Because Peter's tears reveal what has been true all along. The truth about Peter hasn't changed before or after his denial. His tears just reveal what is true. I'm a sinner. I'm a failure. I was covering it up before. I was sweeping it under the rug before. I was pretending before. 
But what was true then is true now. And his tears reveal the truth. And when truth enters the picture, grace enters the picture. Mercy enters the picture. Peter, the text tells us, cries bitter tears. But what I want to tell you this morning is that tears over our sin will never only be bitter. Why? Because tears reveal a turn toward repentance. A turn toward reality. A confession, I am not okay without the grace of God. The second reason that our tears over our sin can never only be bitter is that Jesus always turns our bitter tears into tears of joy. Take him up on it. A few days later, after Jesus has been crucified and laid in the tomb, another one of his disciples, Mary Magdalene, she will go to the tomb to stand vigil over her Savior. And in John chapter 20, we read that Mary stood outside the tomb crying. She bent over as she wept to look into the tomb. And I have to wonder, does her weeping sound like Peter's weeping? Is there a bitter futility behind her tears? A sense of her own failure? Of the world's failure to recognize its Savior. Does Mary share Peter's desperation? Are her tears indicative of a heart which has given out? Of a mind which has given up? Of a hope which has been given over to an anguish which feels like it will be permanent? If so, if there is a commonality between Peter's wailing and Mary's weeping, then there is also the most profound difference. Because Peter weeps on one side of his Lord's crucifixion and resurrection, but Mary weeps on the other side. You see, from where Peter stands, hiding in the shadows of his shame, crushed by the weight of his failure. There is only before him the gaping abyss of his sin. There is no more hiding. There is no pretending. And even worse, for Peter, with Jesus bound for the cross, there is no more hoping. And I know that some of you this morning can taste Peter's bitter tears. You know the gasping cry that comes when you have reached the end of yourself. When the guilty verdict is rightful. When shame has bound you fast. You know Peter's tears. So friends, the gospel is that you do not have to sit in Peter's shame this morning. That we stand with Mary on the other side of our Lord's death and resurrection. And so the words that the risen Christ can say to his weeping daughter are the words he can say to you today as well. Why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? You see, Peter wasn't even looking for Jesus anymore. 
He assumed that he knew how this story was going to end. His sin was final. His failure had been too catastrophic, too public. He was done. But Mary is still looking for Jesus. Behind Mary's tears well up a Easter kind of hope. And I hope... I hope that we are not so calloused as to miss the wonder of Mary's tears. I hope we are not so committed to our own self-righteousness, to our own acts of spiritual piety, to to our own uh, curated identities, to our own culturally acceptable ideologies. I hope we are not so committed to our own vain attempts to save ourselves that we miss the nail-scarred hands of Jesus wiping every tear from every eye. Jesus forgives failures. Let the tears we shed over our sin not be the bitter tears of resignation, but the hopeful tears of those being made tender again to the grace of of Jesus. Jesus forgives failures. Jesus forgives you. Who in the crowd that gathered along the road to Jerusalem to welcome Jesus as their king, who would have imagined that a few short days later, they would be numbered among the crowd shouting for his execution. The cheers of Hosanna in the highest heaven turned into the ugly demands for the most humiliating and anguishing sort of death. It is we who stand along that Jerusalem road. It is we who praise our Savior one moment before falling away the next. And the mystery and the miracle of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that our hope, our salvation, does not come from downplaying our denials, softening our sin. Redemption comes to the desperate failures who know they are failures to the perennial sinners who know we are sinners. Redemption comes to those who have given up the futile task of saving themselves. Is anybody tired of rescuing themselves today? Is anybody tired of trying to save yourself today? Redemption comes to those who hear Jesus say, I will go ahead of you. I will be waiting for you. By the mercy secured for us on the cross, Jesus transforms denials into worship. Abandonment into belovedness. Sinners into saints. And failures into forgiven daughters and sons of our heavenly father. After his resurrection, John's gospel tells us 
that Jesus forgives Peter. Do you remember how many times he forgives Peter? Three times. Jesus takes each of Peter's failures and turns them into a site of redemption. In the days ahead, as we move first into Good Friday and then into Resurrection Sunday, church, do not be afraid to confess your sin. Do not be afraid to acknowledge your failure. Do not be ashamed to weep over your sin. But do not let your tears be the bitter tears of futility. Let them be Mary's tears with an Easter hope behind them. Through our Lord's cruciform mercy, you have been rescued from sin into salvation, failure into forgiveness. That is who you are. Let's pray. God of all mercy, God of all grace, in you there is no lie. There is no deception. You see all of us as we are. Our attempts at self-righteousness are not impressive to you. Our efforts to hide our failures have led only to greater burdens. Give us the courage to confess the sin you died to save us from. Remind us of the inexhaustible grace that was secured for us on our Savior's cross. Convince us again that our risen Lord turns bitter tears into tears of joy. Rescue us from our own self-righteousness that we might believe that every single one of our failures can be redeemed for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.